0: You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org.
1: Exodus, deliverance, a way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom, a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace.
0: We're going to continue in our series, Grace Upon Grace. We're going to be in Exodus 2 today. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Exodus 2, this is what I want you to remember today. And it's actually going to be, our main point is going to be a prayer. And the prayer is this, God, help me to remember. Okay, that simple. God, help me to remember. We're going to look at this. God, help me to remember that you're faithful. God, help me to remember that my life is hidden in Christ. God, help me to remember, but also help me to have faith and what you've done and what you provided through the person and work of your son. So That's what we're going to look at this morning. And that's going to be the main point. I want that to be a prayer for you today. I want it to be a prayer for you throughout this week is God help me to remember. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time for this opportunity to preach and teach your word. Thank you for the gift of technology that though I can't be present can still preach and teach your word, and our church family can hear. And so thank you. Uh, Father help me uh, as I preach and teach this morning. Uh, just through being tired, through feeling like my brain is running a million miles a minute. uh, Father, uh, just ground and anchor me and ground and anchor us as your children in your word this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you've spoken. Thank you for a story of redemption. (laughs) Thank you for a story of deliverance. Thank you for a story that shows us that, God, you are always at work, moving, providing, planning, doing everything for your children. Let us trust in that. Let us trust in you minister to us this morning, please, to the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to dive right in. Exodus chapter 2. But before we get there, th- this, this is going to be like a re-intro to last week's intro. And so we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week at the end of chapter 1, but we're also just going to unpack a little bit of what happened in chapter 1 last week. Because what we were looking at through chapter 1 and what we we're actually able to see is that God is using really horrific evil, awful situations to bring about his good, to bring about his deliverance. So he's working through the evil actions of men to actually bring about his deliverance. And again, I said last week, we're going to see it again this week. We're going to see irony in this story. But what we're going to see is for the Israelites that are living by the time that they have the Torah, by the time these stories are being told to them and to their families, they're living on the other side of God's deliverance on the other side of the Exodus. And so they're able to look back and start to see and go, oh, that's what God was doing. It's it's hard to see what God is doing in these first couple chapters. But what we can start to see is we can see the signs of the plan that God has been putting together for a very long time intentionally. And this is good news for us, just right out of the gate, because maybe you're in a situation or circumstance where, where, where you're going, I just can't, I can't make sense of this. I can't make sense of my life. I can't see God's hand. I can't see God's work. I, I can't see what he's doing. And I'll quote Charles Spurgeon, who says, when you can't make sense of the hands of God, trust his heart. We have passages like this. So we can trust God's heart to see that God is intentionally working in the big and small details of your life for his glory and our good. And so we, we left off last week with this main point, you can't lose. You can't lose because Christ already won. He won the ultimate, the greatest battle that's ever been fought. He fought it alone, he won it alone, and then he imputed that victory to us. What we see last week is we see the spiral of sin. We have this visual representation, this external picture of what sin is doing on the inside and the way that sin leads to corruption, the way that sin leads to despair, the way that sin leads to death. I mean, it literally makes this awful king and ruler kill innocent children. It says this at the end of chapter one, it says, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is to be born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That's how it ended last week. The Nile becomes a place of death. He he now, since the midwives aren't doing what he's asking, since things are getting more out of his control, he tells all the people in Egypt, he, he, he says this, he's like, this is an edict for all of you. If you see a baby and it's a male Hebrew baby, you are to take that baby and you are to drown it in the Nile River. Now, we are 4,000 years or so removed from this text, but I don't think we should be removed from the emotions that mothers, that brothers and sisters, that fathers, that people felt. This is the gross darkness of what sin does on the inside. It's horrific. This is the ultimate exodus that needs to happen is we need God to rescue us from our sinful state. We need God to rescue us from our rebellion because we see this is what it leads to, killing and murdering innocent children. So the, the place of the now becomes a place of death. And then we roll into chapter two, where we're going to be today. So let's read chapter two, verse one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, And when she saw that he was a fine child. She hid him three months. Remember the language hid. Remember it from the garden in Genesis three. God is approaching man and they hid themselves. They, they covered themselves with fig leaves. So she hid him for three months. Verse three. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket, made of bulrushes, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. Verse 6, when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Right out of the game, chapter two, we need to see this. God, help me to remember that you use ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. That's really important for us because at the end of this last chapter, we have the Hebrew midwives, ordinary women. Accomplishing extraordinary things. They are being faithful to God. In fact, they are walking out and living in faithful rebellion. So is, this is the irony. So is Moses' mom. She's she's she, she's not following the king's orders because the king's orders are ridiculous. They're sinful, they're evil to murder children. And so she's not being faithful to those, neither is Pharaoh's daughter, which is hilarious. Even his own daughter is not willing to do it. And so what, what we're starting to see is Shepra and Pua, these, these two midwives very ordinary women, but they're in our Bibles. <laughs> they're in our Bibles because they were faithful. And because of their faithfulness, the Israelites were redeemed and they were rescued. And because they were redeemed and rescued, the Messiah comes through that rescue and then leads us to Christ. But here, because again, the faithfulness of women, and, and we see the, the, the way that our Bible and the way that Exodus is highlighting the faithfulness of these women. Moses' mother hides it. I think this is important to see that God uses ordinary means and and that we need God to help us remember, God, help me to remember. Help me to remember to use ordinary people, because I think we oftentimes believe as Westerners and as Christians that what God needs to do to do something incredible for his kingdom and for the gospel here in Lane County, whatever it is, is God needs. If God would only save that athlete, if God would only save that famous person, if God would save that person because they have such a big personality, if God would save that person because they have so much money, what we're saying whenever we say those things is that what we actually trust in is not in the power of God himself to work through very ordinary people to accomplish big things. What we're saying is we trust in their wealth. We trust in their charisma. We trust in their personality. We trust in all those things. Those people are sinners in need of God's grace. And in fact, oftentimes what God would need to do is start to strip them of those things that they would place their confidence and trust in instead of God himself, which is why sometimes those people that do get saved, might not necessarily last that longer. They oftentimes don't because their trust and faith has actually been in all this fame and all this notoriety and all this th- that they had. And so we oftentimes think, boy, raise up a Billy Graham. But the truth is, is what the church needs and what our church family needs is not the Billy Grahams. We need the Bible study teachers that are teaching the Billy Grahams. We need the faithfulness of the people that are raising up and teaching our children. We need the faithfulness of ordinary people working ordinary jobs in their ordinary lives, to see that as an act of worship and the way that God uses that collectively to accomplish his plan. His word shows us in the first two chapters that it's not these extraordinary people. It is very ordinary. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, he's he's not recruiting all of these big people with these big names and these big backgrounds and these big personalities. That's sadly so oftentimes what, what, what we think and what we hear. Boy, if God would just bring them in. Can you imagine what they could do? That's having a big view of man and a small view of God, because Jesus gets some fishermen. (laughs) He gets some blue-collar ragtag guys, and they go and they change the world. We have to ask God, help us to remember that you use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And so what is God calling us to do? We see the faithfulness here. We see this language here. This is important language. Because the only other time that we see this word for basket that we see in verse 3 is used previously when it refers to the ark. So Noah builds this wooden ark that he and his family are placed in. His family are the recipients of Noah's work and they're placed inside of this wooden ark. Where they're held safely from the wrath of God as the earth is flooded. Now we see there's another wooden ark. There's a wooden basket that this boy this child Moses is placed into, where he's, he's also rescued from the place of death, the Nile River. He's spared from the wrath of the Nile. He's spared from the wrath of this tyrannical leader, Pharaoh. But what's amazing is God is showing, I'm taking the place of death, the Nile River, and I'm bringing forth my deliverer. I'm taking the place of death, the Nile River, and through it, I'm bringing forth someone who is going to deliver you. From death and oppression. What is this pointing us to? This is pointing us to the tomb of Jesus Christ. God literally takes the place of death, a tomb, and through it, Jesus conquers it and makes it a place of life where he provides victory. We need God to help us to remember that, that God is always at work in the darkest and vile and and gross situations, bringing it and using it for our good and for his glory. We see that here. So, the the other thing that, that we see here, is we see Pharaoh's daughter, the princess says, this is so awesome. She, she says, yeah, go go and get someone who, who can feed this child. And so what she's actually doing is she's paying Moses's mom to feed this child. <laughs> so she's actually getting paid to raise her child now, which is again, completely against Pharaoh, completely against anything he said, but that's what's happening. It's it, it, It's us remembering that God help us to remember that you're faithful, God, help us to remember that we can't make sense of what's going on in life, but you're good. God, help us to remember that you're good. These stories show us that God is at work in ways that we can't even see, realize, or understand. So Moses is rescued. He's rescued because he was in a wooden ark. That's gonna be important later. Now we get to this, verse 11. One day when Moses is growing up, whoa, (laughs) what happened? We don't know a lot about Moses' childhood. In the same way, again, we see the gospel writer, Matthew. We, we don't know a lot about Jesus's boyhood. We know very little. He, he, he goes through it. And before you know it, we have his ministry. So it's, it's, it's a really unique parallel showing in the same way. We don't know much about Moses's boyhood, his teenage years, anything like that. Well, what, what we see is now he's an adult. We know from the book of Acts that Moses is 40 years old at this point. So, so right now, one day when Moses has grown up, he's 40 years old. Let's read on. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. and what did he do? He hid him in the sand. He hit him. Again, hit him. This is incredible. We have to see this. Moses' first look was left and right. It was a horizontal look. That means that Moses' chief concern had nothing to do with his sin, what he was doing, and the fact that God sees everything. He was looking left and right to make sure no mency. I was at Albertsons last week and I was checking out at the U Scan. I heard a comedian called the U uh station because you can basically steal whatever you want. Well, I did. I, I stole a bottle of wine accidentally just and it was in the top of my cart. And so I get out to, to my car. And I'm like, dang it. I never paid for the wine. I did the same thing Moses did. I, I, I looked around. I was like, I wonder if anyone would even know. I wonder if anyone even saw it. I don't really want to go back inside it. It's an inconvenience. My first thought was not God sees. My, my first thought was not, does my stealing grieve the heart of God? We see this with Moses. We see this with myself. I, I want to be hidden in uh, this image that where people think well of me. So that's my first thought. I, I went back in and paid for the wine. Honestly, I was a little bummed because I'm like, it's it's a big store. I went in. I was honest. I, hope they were, I kind of wish they were just going to be like, keep the wine. But they didn't. They charged me for it. The moral of the story is be honest. <laughs> I don't know. So anyways, Moses murders a man, the man who wrote the first five books of the Bible, the man God is going to use, which I think what's incredible in the story of Exodus, which I hope that you're reading it. I hope that you're reading ahead. Uh, we, we built out a plan to read to the book of Exodus. That way we can all come together ready and excited to hear God's word, but also it helps us with our gospel communities. But said to say all this, is don't seem much more addressed about this, you know? Like, this is a big deal. Like, this man murdered someone. The man who wrote the Torah, the first five books, again, he murdered someone. The man that God is going to use to use to deliver his children is a murderer. Tell me that the Bible is not a story of grace upon grace. It quite literally is. We, we have someone who's a murderer. He buries him in the sand. What happens? Well, verse 13, he went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Who does he care that it's known by? When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. So again, Moses Moses' concern is not, I've grieved the heart of God. Moses' concern is that people are going to find out. What's interesting is, and we need to see this, is that Moses has a really good desire. It's executed poorly, but it's a good desire. Moses doesn't like injustice. Moses doesn't like bullying because he doesn't just do this with the Egyptian. He does this with his own Hebrew brothers. Like he's stepping in. He doesn't like what's happening. That is a good, godly desire. Murdering someone, not. But him stepping in, that's a really good thing. And I believe oftentimes God has given us desires. What we need God to help us remember is God help us to remember what it is to have the courage to live those desires out, what it is to have those desires reshaped and transformed. But that's where we're at. We have Moses. He murders someone. He tries to separate a fight amongst the Hebrews. They, they call him out for murdering someone. And so Moses is scared. Pharaoh wants to kill him. That is where we're at. Moses now has to go into hiding. He has to flee. He has to get out of Egypt because Pharaoh is going to kill him. This story so far talks about hiding. It's sending Moses into hiding. And and I just have this simple question. Hiding takes us back, as I said earlier, to Genesis 3. The man and woman needed to hide from God because they felt something. They felt shame. They were naked and ashamed. You see, shame makes us go into hiding. Shame over things that we did make us go into hiding. Moses has to go into hiding because of something that he did in the past. Sadly, much of us are still identifying. Sadly, much of us are still being defined by the guilt or the shame that we feel from things that we've done in our past. And therefore, what we hide in and what we hide behind is the shame that we feel. And then what we do to try to fix the shame is the same old thing that's happened since the garden. Is you either hide with fig leaves or you hide with goat fur. Adam and Eve chose fig leaves. Jacob chose to put goat fur on his skin to try and trick his father. You see, both of those are hiding. Both of those are putting something on us to try to put something else forward that other people will stare at so they don't see the shame or the fear or the guilt that we feel. Moses is going to go, he's going to have to go into hiding. My question is, what are we hiding in and hiding behind where we're not trusting that our lives are hidden in Christ? God, help us remember. God, help us to remember that the thing that I'm hiding in and that I'm hiding behind is never going to produce freedom in my in my life. It's never going to compel me to do anything for the kingdom because of the fear, the shame, the guilt that I feel. And so what hiding behind stuff is and what hiding behind fig leaves is this. I hide behind talents. I hide behind gifts. I hide behind uh, gossip. I put on a fake mask. I present whoever the world thinks that I should be because I don't know who I am. And in fact, here's what I'm doing. I'm so afraid and I'm so scared of you getting close to me and finding out the level of brokenness that is in here, that what I'm going to do to make sure that doesn't happen is I'm going to present all of this out here that I can hide behind. So that's what you look at, that's what you see, and you never have the chance to hurt or reject me. That is a lonely, lonely life. That is not a life of freedom. That is not a life of joy. It's a lonely, dark life. And you're never giving people the opportunity to reject you. And in fact, when they do reject you, those are the times, I'm not saying that's easy, that's painful, but it's also the time when Christ acceptance takes on a whole new meaning for you. So what are you hiding behind? What are your fig leaves? What is your goat for? What is the mask you're presenting? Talk about these things in your gospel community. If if we want to go deep and we want to get a little bit real, let's talk about what the things are that we're putting on in our daily lives that we're hiding behind. Let's talk about the way shame has impacted us, the, the way guilt is. But also, let's look at the dirty rags of Isaiah. What are these things? This is me hiding behind all of my righteous acts, all of my good things, the way I serve my spouse. Uh look at the way that I read my Bible, I pray and I do all these things. Those are good things. They're, they're, they're fantastic things. They're definitely not bad things. They're bad things when those things become the things that we hide behind and we're actually doing those to try to gain some sort of worth or acceptance from God or from other people. Therefore, when our spouses don't realize what we're doing, when we're not seen, when we're not praised, when things go wrong in our life, we realize we've just been hiding behind filthy rags because we say, God, how could you let this happen to me? don't you see what i've been doing i've been doing this and i've been doing this and i've been doing this and you let this come into my life what we see is you were doing those things not for god you're doing them for yourself you're doing them so that you can try to manipulate and control god and say because i'm doing these things for you you have to love me now that's not the way god works god's love is based upon grace a decision that he makes not contingent to our works so what are you hiding behind what is it that you want to present to people What is it that you want people to see because you're afraid of them getting to see and know you? Those are good questions. Those are questions we need to wrestle with. And we need God to help us to remember that our lives are hidden in Christ. Like the the gentleman that that, uh, mentor and a disciple and have counseled much of our network said that they spent six months in Colossians 3.3, where that passage is at, that our lives are hidden in Christ, just meditating on what that means. Think about this. What does that mean? That your life is just immersed, wrapped, and hidden in Christ. That when God sees you, he sees the fullness of Christ. Let's pick back up on our story. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to see their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? doesn't trust in God's promises. Neither does his wife, Sarah. And so they take the maidservant, Hagar, who's an Egyptian woman, and Abraham has sex with her, and they have a child. Out of this marriage, out of this lack of trust in God and in his promises and his covenant, they take matters in their own hands. But through them comes the Midianite people. We see this caravan of people. When Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, it's the caravan of the Midianites that bring him safely into Egypt. Now, when Moses is fleeing the land, he escapes and he goes and he flees and runs to the Midianites. Think about that. God help us to remember. God help us to remember that you're always at work in ways that we can't even see. This is a story of God using the horrific evil acts of men to accomplish his goodwill. Again, this is a story of a lack of faith. Abraham didn't have the faith at that moment to trust God. Neither did Sarah, but God took all of that, provided this whole clan, this whole people group that was going to provide for his people, that was going to bring Joseph safely and that was going to provide for Moses. Not only does Moses have a safe refuge in them, he also knows people now for when uh, the Israelites are delivered that know the land. Not only that, but Ruel means friend of God. Elsewhere, he's called Jethro. This is the only time that that he's called Reuel for for whatever reason. But Moses has a mentor. Moses has a man who worships the one true God, the God of Yahweh. God provides someone in Moses's life who is going to take him back to the one true only God, the monotheistic God, the God Yahweh, the God of his people, Israel, the covenant God. He's going to reshape him from this polytheistic Egyptian false God worship culture that he's spent 40 years in and help him to see your sin is first vertical, not horizontal. He's going to help them to see this is who God is. This is what our God is like. This is how our God operates. He's provided. God has provided for him. Not just that. This is, it's, the story is amazing. And uh, there's these shepherds. They don't have a great name. Shepherds don't. And they're, in a sense, bullying these girls. And so Moses, again, he steps in. And this is the first time it's like we see Moses a bit composed. So he steps in. He rescues these girls. Men, pay attention. He rescues these girls they go back, they tell their dad, dad provides wife. Okay. Maybe just maybe look for opportunities like this, that you could step in something like this. And maybe it leads to marriage. You got a 50, 50 chance. Those are are good gambling odds. So that's where we're at in the story. And this is what we see. Moses is now being taken from Egypt. And what God is doing is is God is taking Egypt out of Moses's heart removing idolatry, removing sin out of God's love for Moses. He's like, I'm going to need you to be a deliverer, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to start stripping and removing the things that you're hiding in, that are th- that are removing your trust from me. So, Moses might have had trust for the 40 years in his life. He's like, I'm a prince. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm royalty. God's like, not anymore. In fact, a murderer who is fleeing, who has gone to another land, and now, He's going to become a shepherd. Moses becomes a shepherd. I don't know if you know what the Egyptians think about shepherds, but this is what it says in Genesis 46, 34. Every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So maybe God will take him out of royalty, but then he'll do something else. He's going to make an abomination. Like... Man, God is stripping of the things that Moses might place his trust and faith in, the things that Moses might hide in so that he can place his trust and faith in God. I like what one pastor says, because now Moses spends another 40 years learning from Jethro, learning what it is to be a shepherd, learning what it is to care for God's flock, learning what it is to be patient, because it's going to take a lot of patience to lead over a million people in the wilderness. It's It's going to take a lot of patience to keep going back to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, let my people go. Let my people go. I like what this passage says. He says, Moses spent 40 years in Egypt learning something. 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And then 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. Let me read it again. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt learning something. 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And then 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. For every one year of ministry, Moses lives 120 years he had two years of preparation. God was training him. God was preparing him. God is training you. God is preparing you. God is, as God allows the situations, the circumstances, the difficult things in our life to come in because sometimes what God is doing is he's doing a work of stripping. God's doing a work of removing. And God's doing a work to where our dependence and trust is not in our gifts and our talents, it's in Him. In fact, I like what Paul Tripp says. He says that God will take you to places you would never intend to go so he can do a work in you that cannot be done unless you go there. So again, Paul Tripp says God will take you places that you would never intend to go so he can do a work in you that would never be done unless he took you there. And so that's what God will do. And we wouldn't sign up for painful experiences. We wouldn't sign up for for Moses' life, but we know that God is moving. So God, help us to remember that I can't make sense of all that's going on in my life. But what I can trust in is this, is that you're moving, you're working, and you're good. Let's look at how the story ends. God hears. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. First time we see covenant in Exodus with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. It's not like this is not saying like God for, oh, oh, my my goodness, I forgot about my covenant chosen, treasured possession and people. No, this language that God remembers is, is, is actually can be translated as God is being stirred to action. It's like God's coming for his people. I like the Jesus Book Bible. I'll probably butcher because I don't have it in front of me, but it's the best. I think it gives one of the best definitions of covenant. What is covenant? This is a new word. If you're not a Christian, it's this, it's God's never ending, never stopping, never ceasing, never giving up, always enduring forever, infinite love. That's what his covenant is. And we know from Abraham that it's God who makes the covenant with Abraham. Historically, what would happen in these cultures is that two people on common ground would walk through two Pieces of animals are, are, are animals that have been torn apart. We've seen Genesis 15. God tells Abraham, cut the animals in half. What, what would be expected is God would tell Abraham to walk through. What would be expected in that day is a king would tell someone else, a servant of the land, to walk through. And what that was saying is this. If you don't obey this covenant, if, if you don't stick by it, this is going to be done to you. That doesn't happen. Darkness falls on the land. And God walks through it because what God is saying to Abraham is if I don't hold up to this covenant, let this be done to me. And if you don't hold up to the covenant, also let this be done to me. See, we fast forward several thousand years and that's literally what happens. We find Jesus on the cross as darkness comes over the land. Was he there because he was not faithful to hold up his end? Absolutely not. God was always and will always be faithful to hold up his end. He was there on the cross because we have not been faithful and obedient to hold up our end. So therefore, God, the son would be torn apart on the cross, which is remarkable because if we go back to the beginning of this story, Moses was hidden in a wooden ark. You see, Noah and his family were hidden in the ark made of wood from the wrath of God. Moses was hidden in the ark made of wood, the basket from the wrath of the Nile. Later in Exodus, Moses will place a wooden staff in the Red Sea, and they they will be spared from the wrath of God as they walk through on dry land. And then when we get to the cross what we see is it's ultimately the cross for those who have placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ where our lives are hidden and spared from the wrath of God because Jesus took it. The Christian's life is hidden in the greatest ark of all time. It's the cross. Jesus' wrath is fully poured out there. It's taken care of. Our lives are hidden in what Christ accomplished there. The Bible talks about our lives being so immersed in Christ. It, it, it says that we are crucified with him, that we were buried with him, that we were raised with him. We have be, uh, Through the cross, we become one with Christ. God looks at us and doesn't see us on the basis of our failures, our immorality, our imperfections, our sin, even our successes. God sees our life through the lens of the cross where his son said it is finished our lives are hidden in that. Now, when our lives are hidden in Christ, that does something. It doesn't compel us to go into hiding. In fact, when someone is hidden in Christ, what you understand is this, that your life is hidden in his life and obedience. So what our lives are hidden in is his 30 years of perfect obedience. That means that we are not hidden in our everyday, day-to-day failures or successes. We're hidden in the life that was lived for us 2,000 years ago. But we're also hidden in the death that he died in our place. It, it, it's as if God was saying, let's take care of this once and for all. Let's take care of the wrath. Let's take care of it all. I'm going to pour it out here. And then I'll pour my infinite love out on the people that are saved and spared through the ark of the cross. And so we're hidden in that. And then we're hidden in the victory of Christ taking the place of death, the tomb, and, and walking out of it. Was, did, did, did Christ morally fail ever? No. The life that your life is hidden in is the victory of Jesus Christ it has been transferred to you. That's where we're hidden in, that life. God, help us to remember that our lives are hidden in Christ. We don't have to hide behind shame. God took care of that. We don't have to hide behind guilt. There is no guilt. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Christ also endured the shame. We don't have to hide behind these things, these fig leaves. The most important person in all humanity and all existence looks on you and sees the beauty, perfection, and flawlessness of Jesus Christ. And that's where your life is hidden forever. That compels you. It compels you to act. It compels you to step. I I see this so often at the martial arts gym or at the CrossFit gym. I see people, it's so clear to me, the people who don't understand what it is to have their life hidden in Christ. There's so much weight and pressure in their performance and, and It's like, I'm afraid to compete, or I I don't want people to see how I'm doing or know how I'm doing, or they're just terrified. Christians are the most dangerous people in the world because your lives are not hidden in how you fail and how you compete and what you do or what you don't do. Your life is hidden in Christ. That makes you fearless. That means when I go forward and I'm like, dang it, I blew it at that. Awesome. I succeeded at that. None of those things are what defines you. Your life is defined, defined through faith that you're hidden in Christ. That makes you fearless, <laughs> like that, and that that compels you and empowers you to go into all circumstances and all of life. And it, what it does is it helps you to say this, God, your grace is sufficient. In order to do and live out what you've called me to do, help me to rem- remember this, you've provided all that I need. You've provided me with the gospel identity, I'm hidden in Christ. You've provided me with the gospel message and you've provided me with the same spirit that lived inside of Jesus Christ to help me live faithful to this, but also to help spread it and share it and live it out. Oftentimes you hear people say it's like for, for the homeschool mom, for the uh, parents who have uh, uh, just difficult children, for the people that are in hard times and hard lives, uh, you have difficult coworkers. It's like, man, if, if only God could have so-and-so raise my kids, if only God could. Have... God has not made any mistakes. He has equipped you and giving you all you need. In fact, maybe he's removed things that you would place your trust and faith in. God has given you all the means necessary in the sufficiency of his grace to do the task that is set before you. Here's my challenge. Here's, here's, here's our application today. What is it that God, what are the desires God has given you that he's calling you to do? God, help me to remember that I'm hidden in Christ now. What? And for some of you guys, it's, it's God, because I'm hidden, God is calling me to step closer into community, step closer into relationships. God is calling me now because I work with people. I live next to people that don't know what it is to be hidden in Christ. They're living in slavery. They're living in bondage. God, empower me, help me to step out of this, to go and share the good news, to build relationships with people. Some of you need to hear this. It's time that you come to me, come to our pastors and leaders and say, man, I've just been sitting on the sidelines. I'm ready to be used by God. I'm tired of looking to my own talents and gifts and abilities. I'm tired of waiting till I have enough knowledge. I'm tired of waiting till I do this or or I gain this or I have this. I'm ready. I don't want to put my trust in that. I want to remember I'm hidden in Christ and, and therefore I'm ready. I'm ready to lead. I'm ready to be a pastor or whatever it is. Have the boldness that you're hidden in Christ to come forward and say those things. But God is calling his people to spread his message across our city. We can't do that continually by not stepping out of the places that are stepping into the places that make us uncomfortable, stepping into the relationships that make us uncomfortable. God's grace is sufficient. He's provided a training ground for you. Your your life has been a training ground. God's worked intimately with every detail to prepare you to live faithfully to what he's called you to do. We can do extraordinary things with very ordinary people if, if, if we pray this God, help me to remember. God, help me to remember. So I'm going to wrap up with that today. But before I do, I want us to to remember this, that as we start to see this story unfold and as we start to see God's hand moving, that what we can pray and, and what we can pray today and even communion is is, is a time to, to pray this. God, help me to remember. Help me to remember that you're faithful. Help me to remember that you're good. Help me to remember that you're at work in ways that I can't see. Help me to remember that you are stripping me of the things that I might put my trust and faith in. And that's a good thing, God, because that's something that I would put my trust in, and I want you to get the glory. God, help me to remember ultimately that my life is hidden in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you that it ultimately shows us of the greatest ark, the greatest covenant, the cross, and the blood of Jesus. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen.